number of seats in church being more available because people are on holiday and school years are coming to a close. And it's just that time of year for those of us in the room where as expats we tend to go away to escape some of the heat and be able to go and see families, be refreshed. And we've been here for a little over a year and a week from tomorrow we actually go back for our first trip to the U.S. to go visit friends and family. And in our minds, we're not even going home. We're, we're going to visit family because home is in Abu Dhabi, just as indeed where God has called us. Our hearts are here. Um, and so we're looking forward to going and being back in August. Um, so as many of us, I know it, not just my family, as we're preparing for journeys or for these trips, this morning, on this Friday morning, we're actually completing a journey. We've been on a couple of month journey through the book of Titus and this teaching series called Reveal. And so today we actually conclude the book and conclude this journey through this incredible, at times challenging, but incredible book. And so the, the theme of this series, of this book, is revealing the gospel. And so you, you see there in the first sentence that the gospel has been manifested and it's been entrusted to us and we should be revealing it. And we've looked throughout this series on how we're called to reveal the gospel in every area of life, in personal lives, at home, in the church. We are called to reveal, to display God's beauty, His glory, His message of salvation. And so today as we close this series, we're looking at verses 9 through 15, Titus chapter 3. We're looking at revealing the gospel in our relationships. So revealing the gospel in our relationships. Titus 3, verses 9 through 15. Let's read that together. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Nothing is more important in your life or mine than relationships. Our relationships, first and foremost, how you relate to God in heaven, and so your relationship to God, and then your relationship to other people. And there is nothing more important, and why do I say that? Because our God is described in the scriptures as a relational God. He is relational. God enjoys community, and we sung about Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And so God in this trinity enjoys community, enjoys relationship. And we who bear his image are the same. We yearn for, we desire, and beyond that we need meaningful relationships. And the main idea in this last text in Titus 3 for today, main idea is that God gave us relationships, but specifically for a reason. So God gave us relationships so that we can reveal his glory. And so relationships are critical, and here's why. God gave us relationships so that we can then reveal his glory, so that we can then display 
His glory through our relationships. Now, just kind of a disclaimer on verses 9 through 15 here in Titus 3. It doesn't describe everything there is to say about relationships. There's far more that God's Word says about relationships that's not covered in these few verses. As a matter of fact, in in August, whenever I get back, we're going to look at a four-week series in August where we're going to be looking at relationships out of Ephesians chapter 4. And so we'll be looking far more at what does God's Word say about having relationships and how we're to treat each other married, single, with coworkers, with your parents, with your children, all relationships. We'll be looking at those in the month of August. But for today, we're going to focus on this text in this book and what God's Word reveals in this main idea from Titus 3, 9 through 15. And it's that God has given us relationships that we can display His glory. And there's specifically three ways that we accomplish it in this text. The first one is correcting. And so correcting those who contradict the gospel. And so the first way that you and I can reveal God's glory in our relationships is, number one, correcting those who are contradicting the gospel. We see that in verse 9. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissension, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And so he begins this section with verse 9 with the word but. Now, when you see the word but, don't ignore it. It's there for a reason. It means that there's a transition. It means that Paul has just finished saying something, and now there's a transition where he's comparing it, and so verses right here, verses 9 and following, is flowing from the previous thought in verses 4 through 8. He says something, and now but, and so he's comparing it. And so what does he say in verses 4 through 8 that he's comparing with verse 9 and following? Well, verses 4 through 8, we saw this last week, that describes the gospel itself. It describes the message of salvation. It says that the goodness of our God has appeared. The goodness of our God, our Savior, has appeared. It says that He saved us and that God has poured out His kindness on us. He says that we are justified by His grace. And then He says in these verses that we must insist on the gospel, insist on it. Why? So that those who have believed in God may be covered to devote themselves to good works. And so He's describing that in verses 4 through 8. That was from last week. And he says, but, so he's comparing it. And so he is saying even here that those that have lived a gospel-centered life will produce good works. But what? Verse 9, but avoid. Avoid what? He says avoid foolishness and controversies and avoid dissension, avoid quarreling. So he's saying we must be centered upon the gospel, but avoid this kind of division that is a contradiction that is actually opposing to the gospel. So the gospel is what binds us. We look around and we see diversity. And quite honestly, where else under the sun can you find so many different people that believe different things, that have different church backgrounds, that have maybe even different theological or or, or traditions from how they worship, and have different heart language, and many, many different experiences, and yet we gather together and we lay aside all of those peripheral things, and we say, I love my brothers, 
and I love my sister. And yes, that yank sounds funny up there sometimes. And yet, we come and we worship together because something is binding our hearts together. And it is the gospel. That is what binds us. And the power of his spirit that uses this gospel message to transform lives and to knit our hearts together. And we love each other. And we are patient with each other. And we put aside pettiness because of the gospel. And so what he's saying here is because of the gospel, we must not live lives that contradict the gospel. And so what does he say specifically here? He says uh, foolish controversies, and he says quarrels. He says that they're what in verse 9? He says that they are unprofitable, and he says that they're worthless. And so he says, if you just read earlier in verse 8, which again, this is from last week, just reviewing, but it's connected. He closes verse 8. The gospel is what? The last three verses in verse 8? Profitable for people. And so he says the gospel is what? Profitable. Opposing the gospel, having quarrels and dissension and disunity is what? Unprofitable and worthless. He's specifically comparing. So he is saying a gospel-centered life is profitable. A self-centered life is unprofitable and worthless. See, earlier in this book, in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, he was addressing false teachers, those that were in the church, they were teaching things that weren't biblical against the gospel of God, and he tells Titus, pastor in Crete, to silence them, to not allow them to have the platform to teach things that are untrue. And here he's addressing these divisive people in the church yet again as he's closing the letter. Now, he doesn't specify exactly what the problem was. This foolish controversies and genealogies. And so he doesn't define what the nature of the teaching was, but here's what we do know that it was dissension, that it was quarrelsome, and that it was worthless, and that it was against what God has revealed in his word. And so that's what we know that there were people in the church in Crete that were contradicting the gospel in what they said and in how they lived. You see, we have to understand what the gospel is in order to understand what it means to contradict it. And so the gospel tells us that there is a holy God who is a creator. That's what the gospel begins with. There's a holy God in heaven. He's a creator. So he has made you. Therefore, he owns you because you have his stamp. It's the funniest thing to me moving here. You have to have everything stamped. And when I first got here a year ago, it was, it was so strange. I would go into an office to get my visa, and they would say, where's the stamp? And I was like, what's the stamp? Why do you need a stamp? And they're like, no, 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 no stamp. Problem. You know, like, why? But I've come to grips with you have to have the stamp of approval. That's just the way it works here. And so I've learned that's just the way it is. The stamp does what? It lets you know that someone in authority has viewed the document and has placed their stamp on it. And so it represents that individual that has the authority to place the stamp. So the stamp represents the person, and it's the seal of authority that this is approved. You have God's stamp. You have his image. You represent God. He has, you're approved in his eyes. He approves of you. He loves you, and he's given you his 
image. So the gospel says that he has made us in his image. He owns you. You bear his stamp. But he loves you. And what he wants most is relationship with you. He wants you to know him and to enjoy him forever. And we're to see his glory and then reflect it in everyday life. But the problem is that our hearts are sinful and corrupted and we're selfish and we're twisted and we want what we want and usually we want it now. And those of you that have small children, you know this. You know that your three-year-old wants what he or she wants, and she's not going to wait until you want to give it to her. She's going to say, Mommy, now! Right? And we have to teach our children, no, that's not how you ask. You say, please, and have self-control. And we teach our children to not be demanding. But why do we need to teach them that? As opposed to teaching them, now, sweetie, you should really demand a little bit more. You're just too passive. What parent teaches that? No parent teaches that. It's always the opposite. Why? Because it's hardwired in the child to be rebellious. Why? Because so are you. And so is your, your father and your grandfather and great-grandfather and great-grandfather and great-great-great-great all the way to Adam. It all dates back. He was rebellious. We have his same sinful nature, and we pass it on to our kids. It's spiritual. It's physical. Holistically, we are sinful, and we rebel against our loving God. We have committed treason against God as his image bearer to oversee the world. And God, who is just, has condemned humanity. And we deserve it. We deserve it. We don't deserve God. We don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve any blessings. We don't deserve them. And yet, God loves us. We are the object of his affections. And so he had a plan from eternity past to redeem, to liberate us from our slavery to sin, to take away our guilt, our shame, and our fear of him. His son, the eternal son of God, the eternal word of God, became a human being at the first Christmas, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in your place, and yet was resurrected powerfully to show that he is able to conquer sin and death and now those that repent of their sin and put their complete trust in Jesus who live by faith where you are saved by your faith alone because of God's grace alone, because of Christ alone, we can be forgiven and have his Holy Spirit, as we sung earlier, come live inside of us, give us new hearts, new nature, new desires to obey King Jesus because we belong to his kingdom. And so what the gospel does is it transforms people from the inside out. It's not a religious check. Oh, check. I'm a Christian. I go to church. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with a complete and radical transformation where God gives you a new heart and a new nature because of your faith, the work of Christ on the cross. And we go from being useless to useful, from being unprofitable to profitable. And I learned this lesson very quickly when I moved here a little over a year ago. You see, my, my six-year-old girl sometimes gets asthma. And she's not really bad, but on occasion. Actually, been a lot better here than Texas, so that's been a huge praise to God. Um, well, when we first got here, we had a little nebulizer. If you know what that is, it has a little, it, it goes on your face, and you can breathe in the medicine. And so if you're wheezing, it opens your passageways, and then you can breathe better. So you just do a breathing treatment with this nebulizer. Well, point is that we got here, being dumb Americans, I don't even know what I was doing, 
and we brought our nebulizer, and I thought, oh, my plug doesn't fit in the wall. And so my little girl needed to do a breathing treatment. This is our second day, actually first full day in Abu Dhabi. And, and I was like, oh, this plug, it doesn't fit. I thought America ruled the world, and it doesn't even, and he was like, oh, there are other places besides America in this planet. I'm so glad I'm here now. And, and so I, I go in and get an adapter, easy. So I plug in my American you know, little plug, and I stick it in the wall thinking, great, now my daughter can do her breathing treatment. Guess what happened within, I don't know, one minute. The room was full of smoke. I completely burned the motor in this little nebulizer, this little machine. And I was like, what's the problem? I use the adapter. It fits in the wall now. The American plug works. What's, what's wrong with this place? I was so frustrated. And then I, I quickly learned the next day. I, I talked to someone's in there for a long time. And I said, look, this is the weirdest thing, man. I got this adapter. I plugged it in, and the thing burned up. And he just shook his head. He said, oh, you have a lot to learn. And, and he said, what you use is an adapter, but what you needed is a transformer. World of difference. I've learned that now. I have one now. I have a few appliances I still use that are from the US, and so I have to plug in this big old machine. And what it does is it takes voltage from the wall, transforms it to the right voltage that my device can use, and so therefore it won't blow up my device. And so this nebulizer went from being useful to being useless. It was useless. What I needed in order to have that machine be useful was a transformation. And our hearts before God are useless. Useless, as God's word says. Unprofitable. And yet, when we have transformation, the gospel is a transforming power. The gospel transforms our hearts and then makes our hearts useful and profitable to God. A heart that does not have that transforming power of the gospel through the Spirit can't please God, doesn't know God, and is very self-censored and lost in sin and quite honestly is not going to go very well in life. Like we tell our kids, it won't go well for you if you disobey. And the only way that our hearts are changed to want to obey is through the transformation of the Spirit. The gospel makes this possible. So what happens when you have someone who is in the church, they're a member of the church, and their lives aren't reflecting this transformation? Because here's the thing, as believers, we must live in such a way that we are displaying the gospel, we're displaying forgiveness, we're displaying purity, we are displaying love for others, we're displaying you know, grace. God's given us grace, we give grace to others and so forth. And so when, when we have this, the Spirit's work in our lives through the gospel, then what happens is we should be displaying the glory of God in everyday life. Like last night, talking to my kids, tomorrow's Friday, what do we do in church? We worship God. Yes, very good. Is it just Fridays? No, Daddy, every day. I'm like, yes, worship God every day by loving, trusting, and obeying him. But on Fridays, we do it together. No difference. We do it every day, but we do it together on Fridays. And so we should be living lives of this transformation, lives of God's glory. But what happens when you have someone in the church, a member, 
whose life is, rather than displaying, their life is actually distorting the gospel. Someone's life who is actually contradicting the gospel. And they're a member of the church. What must the leadership do? Verses 10 through 11. But as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. See, we are able to display God's glory in our relationships by correcting those whose lives are contradicting the gospel. This verse here describes what is known in common language today as church discipline. Now, there are people in the room, room this size, I guarantee you, that when you hear the words church and the word discipline in the same sentence, your blood pressure goes up. Like, oh, no, now we're going down that path, this path of legalism and of being harsh and shaming people. And, and a lot of people kind of have these thoughts. That, oh, you're like, what are you talking about? Then don't worry about it. But many of you know what I'm talking about in past church experiences. And so these words, church discipline, very often are not understood properly and biblically. And so we hear it, and then all of a sudden we get very defensive, and we go back to our experiences. But our call as believers is to go to God's word. And so what I'm going to say today is from God's word, no more, no less. And our calling is to hear God's word and to evaluate it, to evaluate what we're saying on a Friday morning from God's word, no more and no less. And so what we see here in verse 10, it's a divisive person. The context immediately is one of these false teachers who is doing and saying things that is opposing the gospel. That's the context in the book of Titus. And they're stirring up division. And so what does he say to do? Warn them what? Once and then twice. So Paul is saying, Pastor Titus, you need to go to this divisive person in private once and then Go even a second time in private. And why? Well, what is the goal here? Well, to encourage this person to repent. Remind them, hey, you're a believer. You have the Holy Spirit. You're called to reflect the gospel. What you're doing is contradicting it. And so we go to the person once and then twice, calling the person to repent. Calling the person to turn back to their first love, to Jesus. But if the person refuses, and is obstinate and digs his or her heels and says, no, I will continue to teach this. I will continue to be divisive, and you get out of my face, and you're you're not the boss of me or whatever, this kind of attitude of I'm right, you're wrong, and not listening to reason and refusing to relent and repent of this divisiveness. Then what does Paul say? Have nothing more to do with. You're wondering, well, why? Why would he say that? Verse 11 tells us, the next verse. He says, why? Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. You see, we're all sinful, if we're honest. Every single person on the face of this planet, including in this room, including the elders and including myself, are sinful. Every one of us. But you must not forget the whole point of the gospel, that it transforms people's hearts and we have a new nature and we're given a desire we want to obey king jesus we want to and so what he's describing here is someone that characteristically their life their character is sinful and warped and twisted and so this is a person that as you look at their character 
what you see is sinfulness and warped. You see, the reality about a disciple that has trust and is following Jesus is that we should have the character of the master more and more. And so when you have someone whose character is very openly in, in opposition to the character of Jesus, then that individual has to be lovingly confronted. Now, do Christians all continue to sin? Yes, every one of us. Here's the difference. A follower of Jesus, one that has a passion for Christ and for his gospel, when confronted with his or her sin, will respond well. That's what Christians do. When, when a brother comes and says, hey, Matthew, are you okay? I'm like, yeah. He's like, no, I'm, I'm not so sure you're okay. This attitude, the, the thing you said in passing, that comment, I don't know about that. You sure you're okay? And I had to say in the past, man, you're right. That was pretty selfish. That was pretty condescending. And you're right, I hadn't even noticed that, but you just exposed something in here that I didn't even notice for myself. And that person who loved me enough to come to me, and then because of the Spirit's work and my desire to reflect the gospel and reflect God's glory, I'll repent. And I'll say, I'm right. you're right, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Or then go to the person that I spoke ill of or whatever it might be and go rectify, go reconcile. And so the difference with a true believer who is following Christ is when confronted with his or her sin, we ought to respond well with repentance. And so what is the goal of correction? What is the goal of what is often called church discipline? What is, what is the aim? What is the goal of it? Is it retribution? Is it punitive? Is, is it punishing someone? What, is it about being vengeful? Is it about shaming people so that they won't do it again? What, why do churches follow God's word and have this church discipline, this correction? What is the goal? What should the goal always be? You know what it is? Restoration. The goal must always be restoration. If, if you go to someone because you see that they're struggling with something, then you should go to that person with the only goal in your mind is restoration. That you go because you love your brother, you love your sister, and you want them to be following Christ, you want them to be healthy, you want them to repent, you want them to experience the refreshing, the healing that comes from coming awash all over again back to Christ. And so the goal must always be restoration in any form of correction or church discipline. It has to be with love, and it's about grace, because correction is about the gospel. Now, to better understand this, we need to know what the church is. Just briefly follow me on this, because there's a lot to be said, but just three thoughts on what the church is and why this matters and what is at stake with this one. The church is a gathering of God's people. That's what it is. It's, it's the gathering, the assembly of God's people, those that have repented and believed in the gospel. And so what are the implications of correction? If a person refuses to repent, if they refuse to turn away from their sin, well, what are they saying? The, the question has to be asked, do you know Jesus? Are you really a believer? Because a believer should respond with repentance. That's what we do. And so if someone says, no, I refuse to repent, and there is just no brokenness over their sin, then we can't see hearts. We're going to pretend to see hearts. But it raises the question, 
And, and the person who refuses to repent has to look in the mirror and ask him or herself and say, God revealed to me, what's wrong with me? Why, why do I not want to turn away from my sin? And so what is at stake here? What's at stake is purity. The, the purity of the individual and the purity of the church as a whole. And so what's at stake is our purity before God. But the church is not just a gathering. The church is also a family. So it's a family of God. So the church is a gathering of God's people, gathered, but also a family. That's, that's, it's described often where the family of God were adopted into God's family. And so when you are reconciled to God and you become a believer in Jesus, guess what you inherit? Look around the room. What do you see? Brothers and sisters. We're a faith family. And so you cannot pursue Christ alone. That's not the way God designed it. He's saving us as a people, as a family. And so as a family, we need to sometimes straighten things out. Families sometimes have times where they have to get together. In my family, you can ask my wife, we've had several of these. Not, not necessarily just with us, but with my extended family and siblings and parents and, and in-laws and all kinds of relationships where we've had to go and say, hey, let's work this out and have the uncomfortable conversation in the living room that can last three or four hours. But say, hey, why are you mad at me? Why did you not like my parents? And then mom, dad, what did you do to her? And get it out in the open. And I've had to moderate these with my parents and others in the room. And it is not always enjoyable. But in every situation, it has netted a healthier relationship. Every time. Because that's what families do. We work it out. Why? Because we're family. And we want to reflect the beauty and glory of God as a family. And so whenever there's, there's conflict or dissension in the family, and then we ignore that sin, what, what is at stake? Harmony. Unity. Our harmony is at stake as a family. But the church is a gathering. It's a family, but it's also we're ambassadors. We're the ambassadors of God. We represent God. The church is designed to display the glory of God on the earth, and so that's what we do. We reflect who he is. And so people come in, and they say, well, what is God like? That person should be able to look at your life and get a glimpse of who God is and what he is like. Oh, so God is loving. Oh, God is forgiving. Oh, God is pure. Oh, God, God is holy. Oh, God loves other people and has good relationships. Yes, God does all of those things. When people see our lives, they, they should see a glimpse of what God is like. And so what happens as ambassadors are, we're not citizens of this planet. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, and that's in heaven. And we're not home right now. We're an outpost. The church is the outpost of heaven, and we represent God. We're the ambassadors sent here from the king to represent him. And what happens if an ambassador acts poorly? It looks poorly on who? on the whole nation. What happens when ambassadors of Christ act poorly? It reflects poorly on the king. And so what is at stake whenever there is open and blatant and serious sin and no one says a word and everyone just kind of ignores something? What happens? What's at stake? Our gospel witness is at stake. Our witness, the gospel itself is at stake. And so we must maintain purity, and we must maintain harmony in our church. We all need the gospel. Beginning with me, we all need the gospel. We all need daily correction. We all need 
God's work in our lives every single day. So my question for us as we finish this first point, by the way, points two and three are much shorter, much less complex, much briefer. So it'll be normal, trust me, all right? You're already freaking out, oh no, this is only the first point, and we're plus community, and the kids are gonna go crazy. No, it's not like that. This first one is much more complex and requires more explanation so that you know where we're coming from as the elder body, as a church, and what we believe. This matters. So this issue of correction, are you teachable? Are you teachable? Are you willing to use those magic words? Please forgive me. I was wrong. When was the last time you used those words in a relationship? Please forgive me. I was wrong. When people come to us, and we need to do this in love, we must be doing this with each other, lovingly correcting one another. What is the quality of your relationship? Correction is an act of love. That's what it is. Hebrews 12, 6 says that God disciplines whom he loves. That's what this is. And let me give you here, here's kind of the key. My flies are killing me here. All right, so, so the key here is that restorative correction. And so restorative correction, that's the goal, re- restoration. So restorative correction should only be as public as the sin in question. And so we're not about shaming people in ECCF Island. That's not the goal. The goal is restoration. And so when there is a sin, however, when there is a pattern of very obvious, serious sin that is become public, especially if it's a leader in a very public position, pastor or elder or other leader, and, and it has public implications, then yes, the correction must be public. Why? Because everyone already knows about it. Everyone's talking about it. It's already out there. And if we don't address it from the front, then what are we doing? We are saying it doesn't really matter. That doesn't really, you know, and that's not an option for those of us that want to maintain purity in our church. And so the correction must always be as public as the sin. If sin is private, we correct in private. We're not about shaming people. We're about restoring people. And so the correction, when it's a public sin, must have a public correction, public discipline. But when it's a private thing, we address it privately. Here's some, some principles, because we should all be doing this in our lives every day. One principle is move slowly. Don't, don't be quick to go confront people, all right? Just give people grace. And so move slowly before you go confront to correct someone who's not living the gospel. Another one is ask a lot of questions. Have your questions precede accusations. Don't make accusations. Ask questions. Hey, how are you? I've noticed this. Are you okay? What's going on? Ask questions before you make accusations. I would say clarity must be sought before certainties are pronounced. And so make sure you have clarity. Make sure you really know that you talk to the person before you pronounce judgments, before you pronounce you know, certainties, get clarity. And I, and I will say this, the last thought on this is, give people the benefit of the doubt. You give your fellow brother, your fellow sister, who you know Jesus died for, who's part of the faith family, give them the benefit of the doubt. So assume the best of people. Yes, if what's worst is known, if it comes out, oh, you still pray, you still love that person. But until it's known, assume the best. 
give people benefit of the doubt. You see, when we do this, when we display God's glory in our relationships by correcting, lovingly correcting those that contradict the gospel, we show the world that we're different. We're displaying that we have a God in heaven and he's real to us. Number two, again, it's much briefer. Number two is supporting those who live from the gospel. So the first of all is correcting those who contradict it, and then secondly is supporting those who live by the gospel. Verses 12 and 13. So he talks about these four individuals. Remember that? Artemis, Tychicus, your best had come to me, Nicopolis. Um, he says, I'm, I'm the winter here. I love this in verse 13. He says, do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And so only one of these four men has a title, and it's the lawyer. So the other guys are just named, and, and then Zenus, the lawyer. And so like, you're making it clear, yes, guys, God even uses lawyers. Yes. Even lawyers are useful. Even lawyers are about the gospel. And so what we see here is a network. Paul had associates, and they were working together to plant churches, lead churches, and, and to be about the gospel proclamation and making disciples. And so Paul was doing it alone. He, had, he names just four. There are many more in the New Testament that are named. And so we see here that he is telling the church in Crete, make sure these people lack nothing, these leaders. Now, were, were they missionaries? Yes, they were missionaries. But you know what? So are you. Every single believer in Jesus is a missionary. We should all be about the mission, about making disciples for Christ's glory. And so everyone's a missionary. But God does call certain people for leadership within the church, to plant churches and lead churches. And the people that live, literally, their living is from the gospel. He says, make sure that they lack nothing. And so as a church, we should be supporting, and we are, and we're going to be increasing that, supporting people that are about the gospel, that are leading and planting and leading churches around the globe. We have partnerships. You heard from Tim Mikey. He leads our missions team. And we're looking at partnerships of people that are planting churches. And we want to partner with them and see that they lack nothing. It's important that those that proclaim the gospel live from the gospel, that we as a church are giving. And so here's the point. Do we give? Are we giving sacrificially? Do we financially give to the kingdom of God? You see, when, when that little offering bag comes by in front of you and, and you put money in there, God doesn't care about the amount. It doesn't matter to God how much you give. It's your heart. Did you give sacrificially? That's what God cares about. Did you actually give? So if, is it just a little tip? Or, or did you actually give to God who has blessed you and allowed you to have the health and to have the intelligence and the doors open to have gainful employment. And so when we give sacrificially, what we're doing is we're showing Jesus that we love him more, that we value him and his kingdom more. And so giving is an act of worship. Seeing that those that are living by the gospel lack nothing, so that the gospel is spread further. And so we must be generous people. We must support those who live from the gospel. Thirdly, I was close. Caring. Caring for others because of the gospel. So it's lovingly correcting, sacrificially supporting, and here caring for others because of the gospel. Verses 14 and 15. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. 
and help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And so he says that we should be doing what? Meeting for cases of urgent need. But don't forget who Paul was. He was evil. He was a murderer. He was imprisoning people. And then what happened to him? He encountered the living God, and he was completely, radically, from the inside out, transformed. And this man that hated Christians now is praying for them and loving them and sacrificing for them. The gospel changed him. And, and you hear his love. He says, greet to those who love us in the faith, and grace be with you, and I send you greetings. See, he was consumed by Christ and his gospel, and it led him to caring for others. That's how it works. The more that we love Jesus and experience his grace when we're praying and meditating, then we just naturally have this overflow to want to care for others. And so the last time that someone called you and said, hey, I need your help, remember that. When was the last time that someone called you and said, hey, I need a ride, or I got a flat tire, or I need to move, well, that's a big ask around here, I need to move furniture, or whatever it might be, and someone called you and said, can you help me? And you said, yeah, I really would, but I don't want to. I mean, surely you didn't say that. But maybe you had an excuse and you said, well, I would really like to, but I'm really busy. I have to go to Ikea. You know, it's Saturday. Or I have to clean the house. Or I have to whatever. And we make excuses why we can't help others and we can't meet needs. We all do it, but we ought not. We should meet needs. We should care for others. And he says, care for cases of urgent need. Help one another. Care for one another. Why? Why? Because that's the gospel. God has saved us. He met our need. Our ultimate need, Jesus met our need. And so now we have the privilege of reflecting that and meeting other people's needs. Because of how much grace God's given us, now we want to have grace with others. And so if we don't want to meet other people's needs, it really is a gospel problem at its root. It's a spiritual issue. And I love how he closes. He says, and not be unfruitful. And so he is connecting relationships and being fruitful for Jesus in the same breath. And so you want to be fruitful for Jesus? Yes, you do. We all do. If you're a believer, then you want to. Well, must, what must we do? Love others. Meet needs. Influence others for the gospel. That's how we're fruitful. This morning, we have our opportunity to reflect on the ultimate relationship, which is with Jesus. Reflect on his work for us on the cross and how we're to reflect that every single day in our lives as we take of the Lord's table in communion. Communion is a time where we reflect on how we're living and how we're following Jesus and to reflect on how we receive correction, for example, from today's text and how we meet needs. And do we actually have a generous heart towards others. And so communion is a time for us to evaluate and do a little self-examination before your God. And if you are struggling with their relationship, there's one solution. Come to Jesus. He'll heal you. You go to the cross, whether for the first time today, you come to Christ. Or for this thousandth time today, you come back to the cross where you find forgiveness and grace and healing. 